Hi, welcome to the Hayek Auditorium. My name is Gene Healy. I'm a vice president here at Cato, and I'll be your moderator today on a subject where I'm really not moderate at all, uh, executive power. Uh, but I, I'm very pleased to have Jeff Rosen and Lou Fisher here. I can't think of uh, two commentators I'd rather hear from on an issue like this, uh, on the future of presidential power in the Obama era. And before I introduce them, let me briefly set the stage. There was a revealing moment in the first presidential debate uh, a few months back when moderator Jim Lehrer asked the candidates, asked McCain and Obama, are you willing to acknowledge, both of you, that this financial crisis is going to affect the way that you rule the country as president of the United States? And what was revealing about it was not was what the uh, candidates didn't say. Uh, that is, neither of them objected to Lehrer's phrasing. Neither of them uh, seemed to have a problem with the idea that the job of the president of the United States was to, quote, unquote, rule the country. But you could sort of understand where, where they got that idea. Uh, George W. Bush responded to the first crisis of his presidency by repeatedly insisting that he was the sole constitutional decider on all matters that could plausibly be characterized as involving national security. And he responded to the final crisis of his presidency, the financial crisis, by busily remaking the commanding heights of the economy through executive fiat. But Barack Obama ran on a platform of change. He, he at least in, when it came to the area of national security, he expressed quite different viewpoints. He did not think that, uh, at least in his public statements in a questionnaire by Boston Globe reporter Charlie Savage in December 2007, Obama made perfectly clear that he didn't believe that the President of the United States had the power to do whatever, uh, whatever he thought was necessary in the area of national security. Uh, and there was this common theme throughout the campaign. You saw it with, with, with both candidates, but uh, uh, you especially saw it with Barack Obama, where he attacked cynics. Uh, he, he, did it, he did it in his inaugural address, and uh, he did it, in fact, in the State of the Union last night. And uh, at Cato, I have to say, we, we take those attacks very personally. <laughs> But in the first, uh, the first week or so of the Obama administration, it was a little hard to be a cynic. Uh, he, it was a shock to your cynicism, some of the early moves uh, uh, he made. Uh, some of the, the appointments and personnel at the Office of Legal Counsel seemed quite promising. And he also issued a, a series of executive orders in the first couple of days of his administration uh, that, suggested he, that seemed to suggest he meant what he said. Uh, when he... Uh, you know, George W. Bush uh, used this phrase in a, in a different context, this phrase, the, the soft bigotry of low expectations. But when Barack Obama signed an, issued an executive order saying that the president would actually abide by federal laws and treaty obligations involving torture, uh, you, you, you were actually pretty surprised. The, the president's really going to obey the law. Uh, so it, it, was, it was refreshing after eight years of George W. Bush to, to hear that. But in the days that followed, there were some reasons that, that civil libertarians might question whether Obama meant what he said. Uh, just a few weeks ago, he 
the Obama administration took the, uh, the same position as the Bush administration had uh, with regard to the state secrets privilege, uh, where, where they uh, invoked it in a case involving torture, not simply to, uh, to keep secret particular pieces of evidence, but to quash the lawsuit as a whole. But it's early days, and we don't know what to make of this. Uh, so today, uh, our panelists are going to help us try to sort through these issues and, uh, and look at what we can expect from the future of presidential power in uh, the Obama administration. I hope also we'll, we'll, we'll move beyond, in, in some of our discussion, Obama-specific issues to talk about uh, broader issues. Uh, should we make a distinction when broad claims of presidential power are made in the national security area? Should we distinguish that from the, the area of economic security and the, uh, the, uh, the areas uh, in the financial crisis right now? Uh, should we distinguish between process and substance? In other words, uh, is, there really, is it a, a difference that we really ought to celebrate when instead of claiming inherent power to, to carry out specific actions, the president gets broad delegations of power from Congress. Uh, if we worry about broad delegations of power, uh, what do we do about this problem of congressional abdication? And are there, there specific reforms that we could institute that would bring us to a, a less powerful, more constant, constitutionally constrained executive? Uh, those are some of the things I, I hope we'll, uh, we'll address today. Uh, let me first introduce Lewis Fisher. Uh, Lou is a, a specialist in constitutional law with the Law Library of the Library of Congress, and he, he worked uh, with the Congressional Research Service from 1970 to 2006. Uh, he, uh, among the highlights of his service, his research director uh, was his service as research director of the House. Iran-Contra Committee in 1987, where he wrote major sections of the, the final report. Uh, Lou is the author of more than 390 articles in law reviews, political science journals, and elsewhere, as well as a, a similarly staggering number of, of books, uh, one of the most recent of which is The Constitution and 9-11, Recurring Threats to America's Freedoms, which is available for sale outside here. Uh, Dr. Fisher has been invited to testify before Congress on such issues as war powers, state secrets, NSA surveillance, and many other matters involving the separation of powers. So please give a warm welcome to uh, Lewis Fisher. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm going to develop a framework uh, on presidential power, the kind of power that stays within the Constitution and the kind of power that goes outside. And I think particularly from Harry Truman to the f present time, we've had presidents routinely going outside the Constitution. And I guess after a while you get used to it and you don't even notice it. But that's going to be my, my framework. Um, on, on the Bush administration, in terms of complying with torture statutes and torture treaties, um, Interesting to see how often George W. Bush and Alberto Gonzalez and Michael Hayden of the CIA and other administration people made it a point always to say that what they were doing was legal and authorized. 
And uh, you had to read it pretty carefully because you, uh, when they said it's legal and authorized, uh, they meant it's authorized by us inside the executive branch. And to us, it's legal because we're not subject to statutes and treaties and the Constitution, the courts. But my point is they made it very clear that what we're doing is legal and it's authorized. It had nothing to do with the rule of law, however. Um, okay, what kind of a constitution do we have? Because if you read the Supreme Court, they'll frequently say that this is a government of enumerated powers. I hope all of us can say that that's not true. We don't enumerate all powers. We enumerate some of them. You can read them in the Constitution, some express powers. And in addition to those, uh, there are plenty of legitimate implied powers, uh, if you can draw them reasonably from an express power. So if the president uh, is expressly charged with seeing that the laws are faithfully executed, and some department head or someone else is preventing that, uh, he has an implied power to remove that individual. And if Congress has the express power to legislate, then it has an implied power to legislate in an informed manner, and therefore it has investigative power and subpoena power and contempt power. And it's odd that the Supreme Court would say this is a government of enumerated powers because uh, judicial review is not enumerated. Somehow they found that one. So we have expressed powers and we have implied powers, and I think that holds the Constitution together. Uh, the Bush administration several times looked to precedents set by Abraham Lincoln, um, and uh, Lincoln, I think, did what he could to keep the Constitution together. He never claimed that he had any unreviewable, reserved, plenary power to do what he did. He never said that. Uh, April 1861, he took a number of actions we all know about, blockade in the South and suspension of habeas corpus and the rest, taking money out of the Treasury without an appropriation. But when Congress uh, returned, um, he talked about his actions, whether strictly legal or not. Very nice phrase, whether strictly legal or not. Uh, he also said that... Um, uh, the powers I exercise are not beyond those given to Congress in Article I. So he was up front saying, I exercise my Article II powers, plus I exercise the Article I powers of Congress. And for that reason, he had to come to Congress to get it uh, made legitimate. And Congress debated his request for retroactive authority with the understanding that Lincoln did not have authority to do what he did. Uh, so he exercised what's called the emergency power to take action uh, at times in the absence of law, sometimes against the law. But he never claimed any inherent uh, uncheckable power. So that's not a good precedent. So in addition to express powers and implied powers, we have something that I think is very dangerous. It's called inherent power for the president. And some people think inherent is the same as implied it's not implied, as the word says. You have to draw it reasonably from an express power. It has to be implied. So there has to be a legitimate argument that because I have this express power, I have this implied power. That's not true with inherent. Inherent is comes pretty close, divine right of king, or whatever you want to call it, somewhere up in the heavens. It's just inherent. 
And if you look it up in Black's Law Dictionary or your Webster's uh, Collegiate, it has something to do, it's in the nature of something, or it's uh, intrinsic to something, and on and on and on. So it's something beyond expressed, it's something beyond implied. It's inherent. Uh, the first time I, I know of inherent being used would have been Harry Truman uh, in 1952 when he seized the steel mills. And uh, he went into court. They talked about emergency power, but they told the court, this is not the best argument for the Justice Department, they told the court, the, the trial judge, you have no control over the president. Uh, uh, the president is subject to two checks. One is uh, the ballot box, and the other is impeachment. And Judge Pine didn't like that argument very much, and he wrote a terrific uh, uh, opinion uh, uh, castigating the administration. And when that was going on, I think the Justice Department the administration realized that Truman had made an error, because he would be asked at a press conference, if you have the power to seize steel mills, uh, do you have the power to seize newspapers and radios and so forth? He says, I have the power to do what's ever necessary in an emergency. And pretty soon he was beating uh, retreat on that. I'm under the Constitution, under the law, like everybody else. But the Supreme Court was influenced by the district court uh, opinion and struck it down six to three. It's interesting, uh, William Rehnquist wrote a book called The Supreme Court, and the court likes to pretend it's not part of government, it's somewhere independent. Uh, I, I think it's one of the three branches. I learned that in grade school, the three branch we have. But Rehnquist said a very nice thing in his book, and Rehnquist would have known something because he was a law clerk in 1952, uh, clerking for Robert Jackson. And he and all of his other people thought that Truman would win it for sure, the case, and he lost. And Rehnquist said that the public opinion had an effect on the district court and had an effect on the Supreme Court. So I have no problem with that at all. I think public opinion has a legitimate role in how we govern ourselves. So that's the inherent power. It got struck down by a court. Another example in the Nixon years, and this is how I got started at Library Congress, uh, the Nixon administration claimed it had inherent power not to spend appropriated money. It's the impoundment dispute. And the Nixon administration said, we can cut a program in half, we can zero it out. That's inherent in the president. It's not checkable by a court or by Congress. And uh, there are three professional articles written on impoundment in the early 70s. I had written two of them, one for George Washington Law Review. So I was brought over to work with Senator Sam Irvin, and we had hearings. I'm going to describe somebody from the Justice Department. Maybe some of you will recognize who it was. Tall, lanky guy uh, testifying for the Justice Department with very long sideburns. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Wrenchburg. Wrenchburg. <laughs> Bill Wrenchburg, as, as Nixon called him, Wrenchburg, yeah. So you know, Bill Rehnquist came over. He gave very good testimony. And I worked with the Senate Judiciary Committee. We passed legislation that passed in, uh, enacted in 1974, placing constraints on a president on impoundment. Um, so that was done as a check by statute. Uh, Nixon also claimed he had inherent authority 
to do domestic surveillance. Uh, that got in the courts, and he lost at every level, including the Keith case. And then Congress held hearings and eventually passed the FISA statute in 1978. So these are all claims of, of inherent power uh, beaten back by either the courts or by Congress. Nevertheless, uh, that shows checks and balances, but in recent years, in the Bush administration, when the administration would claim inherent power, I would hear very senior members of Congress, including a chairman, chairman of a committee, say, and look how this sentence starts off. If the president has inherent power under Article 2, then Congress cannot do anything by statute because the statute is less than the Constitution. Well, it starts off with an if, and you could easily say if Congress has power under Article 1, it can check the president. And so we have this history of either Congress by statute or courts by decision checking claims. Claims is another word, a claim of inherent power. And yet we've fallen into this habit. If the president says, I have inherent authority, well, then you're home free. There's no, nothing we can do about it. Uh, in the Bush administration, George W., of course, the claim of inherent power to create military tribunals. Uh, that was struck down in 2006 in the Hamdan case. Uh, the court said you have to get a statute, and because of that, the administration said, therefore, what the court decided was a statutory question, not a constitutional question. No, it decided a constitutional question, because you had claimed in your briefs the president has inherent authority to create military tribunals, and you don't have that. That's what the court decided. You do not have that, and you have to get a statute. And that was the second constitutional decision, because Congress, under Article I, had authority to enact uh, legislation on military law, uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice, and you have an obligation to follow the statute. If the statute says when you set up a military commission, you have to follow the regulations for court-martial unless it's impracticable, and you didn't do that, so you didn't follow the statute. So it was a big constitutional decision. Oddly, after Hamdan came down and the administration knew it needed a statute, it sent up a draft bill to create uh, military tribunals, and the draft bill said the president has inherent authority to create military. It's amazing how hard it takes to get a point across. Uh, for, fortunately, Congress uh, deleted that. They didn't do much else, but that, that, that sentence went. What other inherent authority under the Bush administration? Uh, inherent authority to take individuals uh, out of the country as uh, the Canadian Mahar Ara uh, to Syria for interrogation and torture. Um, as Jean said, uh, that's been litigated quite a bit and has been stopped in its tracks by the state secrets privilege. Uh, the administration claims that whenever state secrets are involved, uh, simply filing a case, it has to stop at that point. You can't go for any kind of discovery or any kind of documents. You can't do a thing. And uh, the court's on extraordinary rendition. I don't know where the word extraordinary ever came from. I, have a, I know a lot about rendition. It's been around for a long time. Who put on extraordinary in front? Uh, I think in the past, rendition was always subject uh, uh, to um, 
need for statutory authority and subject to judicial checks. So I think extraordinary was put in, I think, to claim there's some kind of inherent authority, again, uncheckable. Um, other inherent authorities, a lot was made of the commander-in-chief clause. I saw Dick Cheney one night talking to a uh, reporter on television. He said, um, this is fairly standard, of Cheney uh, said the president is commander-in-chief, and it's in Article 2. Look, look for it. And I think if that reporter had gone to the Constitution under Article 2, it would have said he's commander-in-chief. If anybody in grade school, I think, came up with that, the teacher would say, well, what does commander-in-chief mean? What powers go with it? Does that mean the president can do anything he wants to with troops? Does it mean that? It doesn't, never meant that. What other kind of authorities? So now I'm looking at Barack Obama and uh, uh, new head of the Office of Legal Counsel. I think it's been unfair over the years to blame everything on John Yu when he was a deputy in OLC, because when John Yu came in, he inherited plenty of doctrines from OLC that read presidential power very, very broadly. Um, in 1998, um, the Senate Intelligence Committee sent me an OLC memo um, on presidential power in the national security area. And I did an um, analysis of it, I think, rejecting almost everything OLC said. And um, I was asked to testify. Peter Raven Hansen, some of you know him, Peter and I testified against the OLC uh, memo. And I think all, uh, most of the senators from Senate Intelligence Committee were there. And then uh, after that, the committee said, I want they wanted me to come back and testify a second time, this time next to someone, a deputy from OLC. It was Randy Moss, a very, very good person. And um, we testified. I think all 19 senators were there. And um, the hearing was over. I went back to my office. And uh, the administration that held that the bill was unconstitutional, and someone about two hours after the hearing called, and said, we just reported out the bill, 19 to 0. You're not supposed to have fun in this life, but that was a wonderful message. 19 to 0 against the Justice Department became a statute. I worked with the House on that. So I'll stop with this. I mean, everything depends on branches protecting themselves, and that's what the framers expected. They knew that if you put powers on paper, parchment barriers, they don't hold up. And um, each, each branch is supposed to fight off encroachments. And I think for 160 or so years, that worked pretty well until Truman went to war on his own in Korea. To me, that was a huge breakthrough, 1950. Uh, Congress did not protect itself because there was a bigger, uh, a scary thing out there, communism. So we know in times of fear that members of Congress and courts do not do what they're supposed to do, which is to uphold the oath they took to the Constitution. And we will see, um, although we just went through eight years of George W. Bush, there are many people before Bush who abused presidential power and stretched it beyond anything imaginable. Um, we'll have to see uh, whether the Democrats are able to go against Obama when he flexes his muscles, because when people say if one branch 
If one party controls both the White House and Congress, you're not going to get any checks and balances. Well, if those of you here remember Jimmy Carter, he got beat up uh, uh, almost every week. Uh, people asking for documents. You're going to give us the documents? No. Well, then we'll subpoena them. You're not going to give us? We'll hold you in contempt. Okay. Didn't know you wanted that badly. So that happened during Carter. And uh, Democrats um, will have to do the same thing with Obama. The, the White Houses don't check themselves. Uh, Congress has to do it. And this is the last comment I'll make. Um, after George W. Bush came in, I met with about seven House Republicans. I often meet with different groups. And I told them, and they looked at me very quizzically, because I said, uh, with George W. Bush there, uh, you're going to be the only check around because the Democrats are not going to have any power. And if you don't check uh, Bush, uh, the White House will get into trouble and you'll pay a price and your party will pay a price. And I would have said the same thing to Democrats when their own person is in. And they just, uh, seven House members looking at me like, what are you talking about? Um, then there were the 2006 elections and met with the same seven again. And they just said, we, were, we didn't do a damn thing. And we had let six years go by. We didn't do any oversight at all. Because I've, I've known for years, uh, talking about law or the Constitution, uh, the interest level of a member of Congress is going to flag. So I, I know enough to talk about them for your own political interests, for your own party interests, blah, 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 for your own re-election interests. But um, so the Republicans made a mistake in Congress during those six years for not upholding their own institution. They don't take an oath of office to support the president, the Constitution, and their own branch. Uh, I know very few, I call them institutionalists, people who care about the institution and are willing to fight back. I know very, very few today, and I knew plenty when I came to Congress in 1970. So uh, for me, I just hope there are enough institutionalists around. And if they're not high-flying institutionalists, I hope they're people who care about their own re-election and their own party interest. Thanks very much. Our second panelist is Jeffrey Rosen. He's a law professor at George Washington University. He's the legal affairs editor of the New Republic and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Jeff's most recent book is The Supreme Court, The Personalities and Rivalries That Defined America. Uh, it's a, a companion book to the PBS series on the Supreme Court, and it's uh, also available for sale out, outside. Uh, Jeff's the author of several other books, uh, as well as a as well as a, a well-published journalist. Uh, he's, his articles and commentaries have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the Atlantic Monthly, uh, and the New Yorker, where he was a staff writer. Chicago Tribune named him one of the ten best magazine journalists in America, and the L.A. Times called him the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. And a year ago, almost to the day, it would have been perfect if today was February 27th, uh, he wrote a, a piece for the New Republic called uh, uh, The First Civil Libertarian President, where, uh, where he said if, if Barack Obama were to win the Democratic nomination in the White House, he would be, among other things, our first civil libertarian president. And uh, I uh, don't know whether I, – I, I honestly don't know whether that's true, and I'd, uh, I'm interested to, to hear what, uh, what Jeff has to say about uh, if he still holds to that uh, proposition. So thanks, Jeff. Very good. Thanks. 
Thanks so much. Uh, And it's a pleasure to be here to discuss this fascinating question, which we might frame as Gene framed it. Will Obama, in fact, be our first civil libertarian president? When I wrote that piece, maybe I was a little starry-eyed with the enthusiasm of the campaign. But I was moved not only by Obama's background in constitutional law, where he understood limitations on presidential power better than any candidate in recent memory, but also by his actions in Illinois, where he had insisted on the videotaping of interrogations and confessions. And I uh, noted that we really haven't had a civil libertarian president, either Republican or Democratic, because of the uh, post-war tradition of expanding uh, executive power in both parties. And I predicted, uh, hopefully in any event, that maybe Obama would break that model. What I want to do with you today is, first of all, confess that I'm no longer sure of the answer to that question. Uh, But we have seen the tremendous pressures, both political, economic, and constitutional, that are already pushing Obama in the opposite direction. And I want to describe what some of those pressures are uh, and talk about why, uh, so far in many ways, Obama has disappointed those who hoped that he would voluntarily embrace limits on presidential power, breaking the pattern that Lou Fisher so accurately described, which is that presidents don't check themselves. Congress has to do it. Uh, I will predict uh, tentatively that whether or not Obama breaks the hearts of civil libertarians like me, he will break the heart of the Cato Institute uh, and will will certainly not uh, radically decrease presidential power. And then I want to think through with you the ways in which he might be similar or different from uh, President Bush. So let's start with the economic questions and then move to the national security arena. Uh, This is not a great moment for libertarians uh, politically, uh, an age of the largest stimulus uh, package since the Great Depression. Tremendous pressure to increase the size of the federal government uh, isn't one where there's much of a political constituency for limited executive power. Uh, I was interested to see recently that a group of libertarians led by Freedom Works has announced the first of what's projected to be several lawsuits against the stimulus package and TARP on the grounds that it violates the non-delegation doctrine, that it's a delegation of lawmaking authority to the president without any intelligible principle. And there are likely to be a series of other lawsuits against different aspects of the stimulus package over the coming years and months. These could range from claims that uh, TARP violates the constitutional requirement that taxing measures have to originate in the House rather than the Senate, challenges to some of the appointments procedures for the Recovery, Accountability, and Transparency Board responsible for preventing fraud and abuse, uh, claims that the states can't be forced to change their unemployment laws as a condition of accepting bailout funds, and closer to home here at Cato, challenges to the home foreclosure provisions of the stimulus bill as unconstitutional seizures of property without just compensation. One thing I'm confident in doing is predicting that most of these lawsuits will ultimately fail. They may get one or two lower court judges to bite, but on the current Supreme Court, only one justice, Justice Clarence Thomas, is sympathetic to libertarian challenges to executive power along these lines. Uh, This isn't controversial. I talked to uh, Bob Levy here at Cato uh, just a few weeks ago, and he said, I don't think these suits are going to succeed either. There's not much of a constituency for non-delegation. The Commerce Clause arguments aren't likely to find many takers. Thomas is really our only hope. Why is this the case, that these lawsuits, uh, which really represent the essence of Cato's challenge to executive power, are likely to fail? 
I think they represent the fact that there's been a significant fissure in legal conservatism over the past 30 years between libertarian conservatives led by Cato, represented by other groups like the Institute for Justice, and big business conservatives represented by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. These two groups share certain goals, a suspicion of regulation, in particular regulation by litigation, but they have very different uh, strategies. Cato wants to use constitutional doctrines to limit the power of the federal government. The Chamber of Commerce big business conservatives are more interested in using statutory arguments to achieve uniformity of legal doctrines like federal preemption. And just descriptively, what strikes me, and I'm sorry to report this here standing on this distinguished uh, podium, uh, is that the Chamber of Commerce conservatives have largely succeeded and the libertarian conservatives, at least before the Supreme Court, have dramatically failed. Uh, they've failed to get uh, many justices, partly because the Chamber of Commerce successful, successfully lobbied for the appointment of uh, big business people like Roberts and Alito rather than libertarians like Thomas. Uh, they've failed uh, in the case law ever since 2005 when uh, Justice Scalia joined the 6-3 to three decision rejecting the Commerce Clause challenge to the uh, state uh, medical marijuana uh, laws. And they failed in the political arena. Uh, so for all these reasons, uh, I don't think that these TARP lawsuits are going to succeed. And that means, for better or for worse, that uh, President Obama will essentially have a blank check to do whatever he likes on the economy. And this is where Lou Fisher's f challenges to Congress to stand up for its own prerogatives are especially salient. Because even if you don't think that the courts are the right place to check uh, economic consolidation, as I uh, don't, you might still fear, as I do, the dangers of uh, fraud, corruption, abuse, and unregulated and unchecked executive uh, power in the regulatory arena. So that's my uh, broad thought on uh, the economic stuff. I do hope that Obama will recognize the usefulness of congressional oversight enough to seek some of it. And if Congress continues to give him blank checks, uh, perhaps he won't uh, accept them. Now let's think about the national security arena, and maybe it's useful to step back here and remember the similarities between democratic theories of the unitary executive and uh, President Bush's, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it perversion or extension of that theory. Remember, it was a Democrat, Elena Kagan, the Solicitor General designate, who wrote an article during the Clinton administration saying that the president's unitary authority over regulatory agencies had to allow him to hire or fire any executive branch official who he pleased. Uh, the Bushies took that to a new level, both by extending it uh, into the national security arena and also adding to that the unprecedented claim that the president could do whatever he liked in foreign affairs without checks by the president or Congress. I don't expect uh, the Clinton uh, rather, the Obama Justice Department to go that far, but I do uh, expect them to have more similarities with Bush than libertarians might have hoped. So what are some of the areas where they've already signaled their uh, similarities? Uh, in the war on terror, they have uh, uh, endorsed the rendition program of the CIA. Uh, uh, Leon Panetta uh, endorsed that in testimony. Uh, Elena Kagan, in testimony, has endorsed indefinitely detaining terrorism suspects without trials, even if they were arrested far from a war zone, insisting that battlefield law applies outside the war zone itself. The administration, is, as Gene and Lou have suggested, have embraced the Bush administration's argument that CIA detainees' lawsuits should be shut down based on the state secrets doctrine. 
And earlier this month, uh, I'm citing from Charlie Savage's excellent piece in the New York Times, uh, Obama issued a statement thanking the British government for its commitment to protecting sensitive national security information. Uh, so all of these are areas where we're likely to see uh, continuities rather than similarities. Uh, Lou mentioned the continuities to the Office of Legal Counsel, and here I think they're interesting. Don Johnson uh, was called by uh, Mother Jones the anti-U because of her strident criticisms of John Yu while she was a law professor. She had said of uh, Yu that she called him a rogue legal advisor and said that the shockingly flawed content of his notorious memos justifying torture demand our outrage. It's a novelistic turn that the anti-U will soon be responsible for defending the real you. And it's striking that she has signaled her intention to do so enthusiastically. She has not rejected the idea that presidents can refuse to sign laws because they believe they're unconstitutional, uh, noting their constitutional objections in signing statements. The ABA has questioned the use of signing statements for this purpose. Johnson has uh, tentatively endorsed that. And while she was at OLC, she uh, helped President Clinton assert that he had the power to refuse to enforce a provision in a military authorization bill requiring the armed forces to discharge HIV-positive members. So she's not an opponent of signing statements in all, in all respects. And she's also, along with Eric Holder and President Obama, signaled her opposition to torture prosecutions of CIA agents who relied on OLC opinions in good faith on the grounds that the bipartisan traditions of OLC uh, have to be upheld. And the whole point of an OLC opinion is that it's essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card for officials who rely on that legal advice. So those who hope for dramatic uh, changes uh, in the Office of Legal Counsel may well be disappointed too. All right, so far I've been just striking gloom into libertarian hearts, and I can see you slumping in your uh, seats and uh, imagining how horrific the future is going to be. Let's try to think back to the youthful enthusiasm a full year ago that inspired me to call Obama the first, uh, hope that he'd be the first civil libertarian president. Is there any uh, more optimistic scenario that might lead him to uh, uh, gladden civil libertarian and libertarian hearts? Well, certainly on uh, in his determination to close Guantanamo. He signaled a reluctance to create legal black holes that are uh, immune from the review of American courts. There'll be a vigorous debate within the administration about whether to try the detainees with, in military courts or to set up a national security court. But broadly, his determination to regularize Guantanamo, full of challenges, obviously, given the uh, poor procedures that led to the detainees uh, to begin with, is a step in the right direction. Uh, the biggest difference, though, I think, between Obama and Bush will not be so much on substance, but on procedure. He's unlikely to make both the constitutionally unconvincing and also politically unnecessary and self-defeating argument that the president can do whatever he likes without congressional authorization. It really is striking when we look back on the Bush years, which seems so far away, although they ended only recently, just how, regardless of what else you think about it, how politically stupid and self-defeating it was for the administration to assert again and again that could act without congressional authorization. As Jack Goldsmith, the former head of OLC under Bush, claimed Bush could have gotten everything he wanted and more if he'd merely gone to Congress rather than trying to get it on his own. He wouldn't have provoked judicial backlashes, and he would have been on more solid political and constitutional footing. I don't think Obama will make 
that mistake. And when it comes to the war on terror, as well as the economy, he will uh, seek congressional support rather than uh, defying Congress. But that's not, you know, that's a kind of... uh, modest uh, bomb for those of us who are seeking for uh, limitations on presidential power. Congress is going to be no more inclined to limit the president than uh, the president might have been limited acting on its own. The truth is there's never been a national constituency for civil liberties. I'm always struck by the polls that John Ashcroft used to cite. He's noted that 50% of the public thought the Patriot Act struck the right balance between privacy and security. 20% thought it didn't go far enough, and only 20% thought it went too far. That's the 20% that he called the vocal minority of civil libertarian liberals and libertarian conservatives. Those numbers seem about right, which is why the Clinton administration, no friend to civil liberties, endorsed many of the provisions after Oklahoma City that ended up in the Patriot Act and why we've never really seen a post-Watergate president dramatically limiting uh, its power. So the question I want to end with is, I don't have any doubt Obama will go to Congress. Congress will endorse everything he asks. The only remaining question is, will Obama break the historical model that Lou noted and restrain himself in any significant respect? Is there any authority that he might seek that he voluntarily won't? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that Obama cares a lot about history. I've been very encouraged recently by his repeated quotations from Louis Brandeis, uh, my favorite justice and a hero here at Cato, I'm sure, too. And Brandeis, better than anyone, recognized the dangers of the curse of bigness, not only in the corporate arena, but also at the regulatory level. Brandeis questioned parts of the New Deal. He thought that the federal government should use its taxing power to break up corporations, which could then be regulated primarily by the states. And his greatest insight was uh, to recognize that the doctrine of separation of powers was adopted not to promote efficiency, but to preclude the exercise of arbitrary power. I am distressed to see Congress enacting measures like the TARP not focused on the constitutional dimensions of the blank check that it's creating. I hope Obama will recognize the wisdom of oversight uh, merely because it will avoid the kind of scandals uh, and consolidation and fraud that will undermine his broader program. So having spent the past eight years properly excoriating President Bush for asserting unilateral presidential authority in the war on terror, it would be foolish for liberals to encourage President Obama to assert similar unilateral authority during the economic crisis. And the fact that libertarians are the first to have noted uh, this dissonance uh, is only to their credit. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lou and Jeff. I I think uh, before we open it up for uh, questions, I'm going to take moderator's privilege and just uh, uh, address a question to perhaps both of you. I I think something that emerges out of this discussion, uh, we may not be clear on whether Obama is engaged in a genuine attempt at self-restraint, at restraining executive powers. Uh, But I think one theme that that emerged in, in both of your remarks is uh, that self-restraint is a pretty imperfect solution to the problem of presidential power? That because uh, self-restraint is hard, uh, is you know we we may find in our own lives it can be like the note on a, a refrigerator uh, if you if you have if you're in a diet, and uh, the the better restraint uh, ha- has to be external. It's unrealistic to expect uh, somebody 
who uh, runs the gauntlet that they that pre- modern presidential candidates need to run to become president uh, to get into office and renounce all of their powers with the the pressures on them. Uh, but how do we reinvigorate, uh, particularly? In Congress, the idea Madison's idea of ambition counteracting ambition, because it seems as though the incentive structure for presidents works pretty well to preserve presidential power, but congressional ambition is increasingly devoted to uh, winning re-election, and uh, there there is less ambition to preserve the institutional prerogatives of Congress. Uh, how do we how do we reinvigorate that? Uh, how do we get more institutionalists, and how do we uh, reinvigorate Congress to to check the president? Yeah, let me say that uh, part of the problem is Congress not protecting itself and forgetting that they are representatives of constituents. They're not uh, White House aides. So that's part of it is Congress. But it's much broader than that. Um, somewhere in the Cold War period, we had leading academics – uh, Henry Steele Cominger and Arthur Schlesinger both rushed to Truman's defense with the Korean War and uh, ridiculed anyone who suggested that Truman had no authority to do what he did. Both of them, 15, 20 years later with Vietnam, apologized for what they said. But for a long time, uh, they were the ones who were pro- proponents of unchecked presidential power. And Richard Neustadt uh, probably wrote the most important book on presidential power, uh, he basically broke with Edward Corwin's public law model. And if you read Neustadt's book, I'm, I'm, it has to be the most popular around, there's nothing there about law or constitution. He's, he's famous for saying that it's the uh, politics of persuasion, but he didn't say anything about Truman having to persuade Congress to authorize the Korean War. And everything in his book is saying that the more power to the president, the better off the country is. So total rejection of checks and balances and of constitutional limits. And uh, conservatives used to be the ones who uh, felt that Congress was the first branch. Uh, James Burnham and many others, they were the defenders of Congress. And then I think in the 70s under... Uh, Carter and Reagan, they started to switch sides and became neoconservatives under Reagan and felt that the more power, particularly because of national security uh, scares you can put in the president, the better off you are. So in, as uh, Gene and I have written uh, books against that model of the presidency. In, in recent years, there have been other books that have come along a really terrific one that came out last year is by Richard Pius called Why Presidents Fail. And Pius has been working this area for a long time, so it's not a, not a tactical partisan shift for him. I'm afraid that some of the books that have come out in the last couple of years uh, warning us about presidential power was because of George W. Bush, and they will switch course again. So I'm saying that the, the media, it's, it's unbelievable what New York Times reporters and others will put in, the, in, in, in newspapers. Unbelievable. The president is commander-in-chief and can therefore do whatever he wants in any war. It's unbelievable. These reporters have no knowledge at all, and you'd think someone reviewing it says, you're not an expert. Why are you saying that? Why don't you say that somebody in the White House says that? So this is a really deep problem we've had, I would say, it has been going on. 60, 70 years, and we have just forgotten 
what it is to have self-government and democracy and self-rule, just totally forgotten all of those values. How do we reinvigorate congressional oversight? Scandals. That's always what's done it. So in World War II, uh, Congress was relatively quiescent until evidence of wild military fraud and overspending led to the Truman Committee, which led to Truman's uh, appointment as vice president. And after the war on terror, it took uh, revelations by the New York Times in its good uh, sense uh, of excesses of torture to promote the threat of congressional hearings, although note that the fact that Congress is not holding a church commission about uh, torture until the White House decides what it wants to do suggests that in an era of unified government, even an energized Congress is not really going to assert itself against a popular president's wishes. So uh, in addition to that, the powerful incentives uh, that have grown even greater, Lou, don't you think, uh, on Congress to pass the buck in recent years, not only uh, to the courts, but also to the president, because if things go wrong, it avoids the blame, and if things go right, it doesn't get the credit, make it even less likely for me to imagine that uh, a Democratic Congress would challenge Obama in really meaningful ways. But that's why, and I want to have the conversation with uh, you about this, because I know how uh, I see many friends in the audience who've thought deeply about this. Is it inconceivable that this president might restrain himself in some respects, merely because he knows the historical hazards of acting unilaterally? So Lincoln and Roosevelt knew it was politically useful to get congressional cover for their actions. I'm sure that Obama will be much better in Bush in getting formal statutory approval for everything he wants to do, Uh, whether he'll go even further than that and welcome things like oversight bodies, both congressional and judicial, to uh, ensure that uh, the, the new agencies and regulations don't go awry. I just frankly don't know the answer to, but it does strike me if anyone would do that, then it would be Obama, because he really knows this history uh, pretty well. Okay, let's uh, open it up for questions. I will call on you. We have a a microphone. Please wait for the microphone. Uh, ID yourself and uh, any affiliation if you want to, and uh, please do make it a question, uh, not a speech. Uh, Yes, sir, the gentleman right there. Melvin Urofsky, Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, Jeff, you said something that's very interesting, that you think Obama can get cover by having Congress delegate him authority. And that certainly is true, but that raises a question that Lou talked about. Does it become constitutional within the traditional framework of government if Congress delegates? Now, part of the problem we had with George W. Bush was that he just took it when, as you say, he could have had the cover of Congress. But that still doesn't talk to the issue of expanded presidential power. So let's assume that Obama is much smarter than Bush, I think in conclusion most of us would agree with. And he goes to Congress and he says, I want the authority to do X, Y, and Z, whatever X, Y, and Z might be. That doesn't really address Lou's question of the constitutional limits on presidential power. If... Congress says you can do it under whatever authority Congress chooses to do so, that's still expanding presidential authority beyond the limits that Lou seemed to imply were inherent, I'm sorry to use the word, Lou, (laughs) inherent in the Constitution. Uh, It's wonderful to uh, see you, uh, uh, Professor Urofsky. You're, of course, the leading uh, biographer of Brandeis who uh, understood these 
uh, questions better than anyone. But my instinct is when I try to think of all the plausible constitutional challenges that might arise, they're not frivolous. But I don't think they will succeed, and I don't think that they really should succeed because they tend to uh, deal with very uncertain doctrines. So I have no desire to revive the non-delegation doctrine. Unlike most of the people at Cato, I agree with the New Deal, the post-New Deal judgment that uh, courts have no business enforcing murky limitations on presidential power that the president and Congress strongly uh, reject. I don't want to revive the Commerce Clause, which would bring the post-New Deal regulatory state to a halt. As sympathetic as I am to some of Cato's arguments on political grounds, I think the catastrophe of economic judicial activism around the New Deal era uh, makes it foolish uh, to try to revive it. And descriptively, I'm just saying it's not going to happen. Regardless of how much you want to revive those doctrines, my friends at Cato, this this Supreme Court's not going to go for it, and you're just not going to get very far. So I would just strategically uh, not focus on the uh, judiciary as an avenue for those uh, revivals. The other doctrines, I, I, uh, I tried to outline some of them. Appointments clause challenges, uh, unconstitutional conditions or commandeering challenges. You know, these are sort of technical, but it's just not going to po- pose a significant obstacle to what Obama wants to do. So uh, all that's to say is that I don't agree that uh, there are judicially enforceable constitutional limits that will really tie Obama's hands, uh, and I think it would be foolish to try to resurrect them. Yeah, let me say that uh, Congress uh, has plenty of tools if it wants to be co-equal, and I think they've been forgetting about the tools, but I'll give you a nice example. Um, Reagan uh, nominated Rehnquist to move from associate justice to chief justice, and the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, said we want some memos that uh, Rehnquist wrote when he was head of OLC. So you can imagine the first response from the executive branch. You can't see those memos. They're part of the internal deliberative process. And Senate Judiciary, in his bipartisan support, said, fine, then we won't bring them out of committee for a floor vote. And it wasn't just Rehnquist. The Senate was going to take up Rehnquist and Scalia together. So now you've got two <laughs> nominees held up. So, uh, and you can bet they, they, they did a deal and uh, gave them some memos and so forth. I just don't see Congress for a long time saying that, okay, if you want to have that argument, here's the cost. And uh, the cost is severe if Congress wants to do it. But I just don't think they've, they seem to have forgotten how to play hardball and how to protect themselves. They have plenty that they can do to be very, very effective and stop executive branch arguments like that in its tracks. Um, yes, sir. Just a second. Wait for the microphone, please. Yes. Um, given the uh, lack of uh, standing to challenge the abdication of uh, congressional uh, authority and its exercise, uh, given the lack of the media asking repeatedly uh, the executive, by what authority uh, are you doing this? Uh, given the structure of the military-industrial complex and other corporate power that wants a ever more powerful executive, and given that Congress is not willing to exercise its formidable tools that Mr. Fisher pointed out, like cutting appropriations, uh, to uh, enforce uh, constitutional checks and balances, Bruce Fine has proposed establishing a broad-based citizen group called First Branch, which would develop political power uh, to make Congress respect its responsibilities and adhere to its uh, constitutional authority. 
Would you support something like that, both of you? Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Bruce, Bruce is uh, – uh, I, I met Bruce when I was on the Iran-Contra committee. He was Republican and pretty supportive of what Reagan did, and he's t- turned around totally since that time. Um, I think there's a lot to support what he's proposing. I'm The only part that makes me leery is that I don't like Congress in not doing its job to expect somebody else to do it for them. I think members have to do it. They have a capacity that they have to learn how to exercise uh, I think what Bruce has in mind is people would uh, prepare briefs for courts and we testify and, and uh, meet with members and uh, remind them of their constitutional duties. So there's a lot there. But just as I'm, I, there are these sort of truth commission ideas coming up that someone outside will look at what happened in George W. Bush. I don't like that either. I, uh, I think the judici- judiciary committees and other committees have the subpoena powers, and they should exercise them. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm very happy for what Bruce Fine has been doing. I just don't want Congress to uh, uh, drop the ball. If the goal is to file briefs and seek judicial redress, I'd be less enthusiastic about it because, as Ralph Nader suggests, standing doctrines would preclude challenges to taxpayer uh, suits and so forth. But if the goal is to try to energize citizens on behalf of limits on executive power, I can't imagine a better project. That was Brandeis's insight, that an energized citizenry is the best defense of liberty. We've seen modest examples of success of these sort of citizen movements. Just last week, Facebook was required to rescind its change to its terms of service agreements, which it asserted would allow people to own their data forever. Ten million viewers, uh, users objected, and it changed the policy. Now, Ralph, you know better than anyone the difficulties of really energizing national majorities on behalf of these principles, and you've fought the battle, uh, you you fought the good fight uh, better than anyone, too. So I don't think I'm not especially uh, optimistic that Bruce Fine's group would succeed uh, better than you have, but I can't imagine a better use for the energies of those people who are concerned about executive power than trying to mobilize against it uh, politically. Um, In the back there? On Arnold King, and my question to you guys is, how did President Reagan, Bush Sr., and Clinton use their presidential power? In other words, did they have to uh, get go, go by, uh, get through Congress to uh, use their presidential power to establish uh, law, oversight, and regulation? Because in today's, uh, because today, well, I mean, oversight is uh, it, it's lacking because of favoritism. Don't you... Don't you think that is? Well, let me say about uh, you know, Reagan was the one, of course, who uh, decided to violate the Bolton Amendment. You may not use any money, direct or indirect, uh, to help the Contras, and he violated that. And uh, um, I, th- I think it was an impeachable act, uh, and uh, the two branches entered into some kind of agreement on, on the investigation. Uh, Judge Walsh was the independent counsel. Uh, he had collected enough information. Many people did go to prison with the Iran-Contra, but there are many other top people in the administration who I think would have ended up there, but then we had the, uh, what, the Christmas pardons in December 1992 by Bush 1. So that's been a pattern where some illegality happens within the administration, 
and it goes so far to catch a couple people in the middle or below the middle, and the people at the top who are supposed to be accountable uh, escape. Clinton, uh, another former teacher of constitutional law. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we're, we're a really reliable group. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he held throughout his eight years that uh, he never had to come to Congress for authority for any military action. I often ask an audience, uh, what country was Clinton going to invade? Someone know? It's funny. He was going to invade a country. Nobody can remember this. Very funny. Haiti. 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 Uh, everything else he did, I mean, uh, he, he never went to Congress on Bosnia. He went to NATO. That's kind of interesting. You go to Belgium and Luxembourg to get authority and not to Congress. When he couldn't get NATO, uh, uh, the, uh, the UN as well, uh, when he couldn't get the UN Security Council for Kosovo, then he goes to NATO. I mean, it's just totally run around the representatives, uh, the, the authorities. So um, not much nice to say about those two from my standpoint. How about you, Jeff? Sounds like you've done very well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Switch for the microphone. Yeah, hi. Uh, Kenneth Rothschild. Uh, First, I think the forum is excellent because you're really raising some fundamental issues. Uh, but I want to pose problems that are even going beyond this. Uh, basically, we are in exceptional times internationally, economically, and whatever. And what we are doing currently is we are resetting a clock where the fundamental mechanism is default. It's, and if we keep resetting it, it's not helping us to get to the real problems. We have to examine the Constitution and a whole variety of things to understand how we can update our systems to accommodate the current times. Now, here's a paradox that I, I want to raise uh, and see how the two of you respond. Because of the nature of the problem and, the, reset and the, the restructuring that is necessary, we are going to need some fundamental, strong leadership, sort of like that happened during the Lincoln period. And we're going to need somebody that's going to take control, at least temporarily, through this transitional period. The problem becomes, how do you do that in a way in which once you have set up the new system, you're not stuck with, with that type of leadership. And one, one other thing I just want to bring up, I thought Mr. Uh, Nader's comment was very good. When we examine the Constitution, the one thing that seems to be lacking in there, from my point of view, is that we don't have a statement that there should be checks and balances on special interests. Now, if that type of thing were in the Constitution, it would give a handle to the organization that Mr. Nader was speaking about, where they would have a direct line into the system and say, you are not enforcing that aspect of the, the Constitution, because everything else is checked and balanced, or at least apparently the courts and so forth. 
But we don't have the checks and balances on the special interests, and they have overwhelmed the whole system. It's a very important point. What you're really saying is that at times of economic and constitutional crisis, political leadership will assert a new constitutional vision, and the entire uh, Constitution may change in unwritten ways. I think this is the lesson not only of Lincoln, where there was, of course, a civil war followed by constitutional amendments, but this is the New Deal, where Roosevelt asserted this radically expanded vision of presidential authority in the regulatory state. The Supreme Court eventually acquiesced, and that's uh, viewed by many, although not the people at Cato, as the equivalent of a constitutional amendment, which has dramatically expanded presidential power. Uh, what is not clear to me, and this is the subject of our discussion today, is will Obama expand presidential power dramatically as Roosevelt did, and will the Constitution change as a result? And as you say, in extraordinary times, he might. We're just seeing the beginning of the regulatory and economic response. There's going to be years of new structures created. And descriptively, I'm, just, I'm not predicting a lot today, but I am predicting courts are not going to be a really big obstacle to this. So if he wants to expand presidential power and change the scope of the federal government, he'll be able to. Parenthetically, it's not true that there's never been a constitutional prohibition on special interests. In the 19th century, courts were very aggressive about enforcing limitations on class legislation, which they saw as legislation that favored one group over another. The lesson of the post-New Deal period was that once it was contested, that redistributive regulation was a form of special interest pleading as opposed to something that helped the economic system as a whole. Judges should get out of that business, and that's why they're reluctant to do that today. So I'm just saying once again, I don't favor judges taking the lead here. But will uh, uh, I guess I'll say finally in response to your question, although I think Obama will uh, do a lot of things, I don't think that the scope of federal power will expand uh, in ways that take it far beyond the post-New Deal regulatory state because there's less tolerance now for big government and a suspicion of uh, com completely unchecked regulatory structures. But I'm not sure – about this. It could go either way. And again, I'm eager for everyone else's thoughts about that. Yeah, two quick comments. You raised the issue of a crisis. Uh, that's where we usually injure ourselves a great deal. Any time of emergency, everyone stops thinking. Um, uh, Chuck Cagle, uh, bless him, uh, a couple of years ago said uh, it's not unpatriotic to question government. It's unpatriotic not to question government. Uh, I recently read the floor speech, uh, 1872, called Schertz. He was born in Germany, and he was a U.S. senator. And in debate, he challenged something the administration was, do, was doing, and someone raised the question of whether Schertz, born in Germany, was not being patriotic. And you probably, you probably some of you have seen his sentence. He said, uh, instead of saying, my country, right or wrong, he said, my country, right or wrong, uh, when right to be kept right when wrong to be set right. But that's what you need in this country and journalists and everyone else, the media, everyone else has to be able to stop and think independently. Otherwise, you lose any, any kind of checks and balances and democratic checks, uh, any kind of authenticity. And any effort we're making to spread democracy in Iraq and elsewhere, uh, we should be caring about it here. And we've really done a lot of damage to ourselves in recent years. Uh, Bill? Good 
One institution you have not talked about is the press. But we're in a world in which uh, major newspapers are collapsing on a weekly basis, and something drastic is going to happen to the nature of, of news, news making and news and, and news reporting. Now, how is that going to be a problem? Are these substitute uh, media of the blogs and uh, all the whole electronic media are they going to serve the role that the print press has done? No. Uh, and on that score, can I commend the superb article in this week's New Republic by Paul Starr about the end of the press and the consequences for uh, oversight of corruption? And better than anyone I've seen, Starr f paints a dire future in which the main watchdog of democracy might indeed be imperiled by the decline of uh, these great institutions and how blogs and the new media will not begin to take up the slack. Back to Brandeis, of course. Sunlight is the best disinfectant to the need for an energized press to oversight. But you're really right to remind us, we've talked about different kinds of oversight. Uh, Congress and the courts may not do their job. The one uh, institution that has done it is the press, but now that's imperiled as well. I'll give you one example. The New York Times again. Uh, in the Clinton years, uh, the New York Times on page one above the fold repeatedly said that Clinton can send troops into Bosnia because under the Constitution he does not need authority from Congress. And I wrote to the reporter, I said, why do you say that? You're not an expert, at least I've written this area, it's more complicated than what you say, so why don't you put in that uh, Clinton claims he doesn't need authority from Congress, or so the White House uh, uh, makes some assertion. So... Uh, about three, four days later, I get my copy of the New York Times on page one above. It's the same reporter saying um, President Clinton claims he does not need authority from Congress. So I felt pretty good, go to work. And then the Hill uh, newspaper uh, had opposed Clinton sending troops to Bosnia. But now I'm reading their editorial. They say, although we continue to uh, oppose troops to Bosnia under the Constitution, President Clinton doesn't need authority from Congress. So I, so I called them. And I said, why do you say that? They said it was in the New York Times. <laughs> it's hopeless. <laughs> could, could, could I just, just because it's such an important point, Lou, you're right to point out the areas of frustration, and it's certainly not perfect. But for goodness sake, if it were not for the New York Times, yep. uh, we would not know about the Bush uh, excesses regarding secrecy, torture, rendition, wiretapping, detention, uh, you know, here, here for the old media with all its uh, faults, and long may they thrive. Okay. Uh, yes, sir, in the front. Chia uh, Chen, Reading's correspondent. Mr. Rosen. You said the people <coughs> uh, is intolerant on big government. I don't think so. If you look last uh, 20 years, government is getting bigger and bigger. And now everybody wants government to do something. Uh, I expect the coming budget will be biggest in the history. You know, you're right, sir, to challenge me. And even as I said it, I wondered if it was correct. I mean, Obama still, in the inaugural address, reframed versions of the Clinton and Reagan uh, aphorism that government is not the uh, solution, it's the problem. Didn't go that far, but still seemed to embrace the post-Clinton skepticism of uh, the great society. But you're absolutely right. We're in unprecedented times. And given the possibility of bank 
nationalization, for example, that would lead me to rethink my answer to your colleague about whether or not we might be on the verge of a transformation in the scope of federal government as dramatic or more so as the New Deal. So I've said I'm not uh, sure what's going to happen, but uh, I, I, I spoke too confidently in suggesting that people will not be willing to embrace such an expansion if Obama actually proposes it, and I'm just not sure what's going to... I wish Obama had not made the claim that uh, at the end of his term he will have cut the deficit in half. The, the deficit is like 1.2 trillion and probably will be higher. So what, are we going to end up with a, a deficit of only 600 billion or 800 billion? You know, it's just... Uh, Amazing. Uh, for the, the, the national debt from 1789 up to 1981 was $1 trillion. And Reagan doubled it in four years, tripled it by the next four. And it's, what is it, uh, Ralph? Is it 12 trillion? I mean, it's just so uh, we have no concept anymore of, of either warning a balanced budget or knowing how to get there. Can I, if I just, uh, I'd like to bolster your initial point, though, a little bit, Jeff, uh, if only because we have uh, been hearing a, a, a lot of gloom and doom, uh, and it's not usually my role to play optimist, but uh, just out of contrarianism, uh, I think there there is something to the idea that there is uh, less trust in government and that that does uh, at least over the last generation or two, and that that does uh, serve as some kind of check on the expansion of executive power. There's a, uh, a, a selection from the Watergate tapes where H.R. Haldeman says to Nixon, uh, you know, one of the, one of the reasons we, we ought to think about suppressing the Pentagon Papers is because if these come out, then, quote, the implicit infallibility of presidents will no longer be an accepted thing in America. And the idea that anyone could say that with a straight face uh, shows you how far, we, how far we've come. Uh, there's a great uh, article, a law review article, by uh, Cass Sunstein and Jack Goldsmith uh, from a few years back about uh, the, the differing reaction between, uh, on military tribunals uh, from the, the Roosevelt administration in which you had uh, members of the press, uh, even the, the nation, uh, endorsing uh, military tribunals for uh, uh, captured Nazi saboteurs. Uh, and then they contrast that with the, uh, the reaction to the military tribunals proposals uh, uh, under George W. Bush, uh, where there was much more pushback from the, the populace and from uh, the media. And they, they credit that shift to a shift in, in the American mindset after uh, – after Vietnam and Watergate and the revelations of the Church Committee. And uh, as, as much as we may think that uh, things couldn't get worse uh, or on, on presidential power, uh, I, I think it's also instructive to look at how far we've come and how much less we're, we're willing to accept than we were a generation ago. I would just add to that that when Truman did the steel seizure <clears> – <throat> Uh, editorials around the country blasted him as a dictator. Uh, he really took a beating around the country, and I was waiting for something like that to happen in the Bush, uh, uh, George W. Bush years with NSA surveillance and everything else, and I just never saw it. It did by the end. 
which suggests to me that there might be a difference in public tolerance of executive excesses when it comes to uh, torture, civil liberties, and things that people imagine might possibly affect them personally, and economic expansion and regulation, which most people think is good for them and will help uh, the economy broadly. So that would suggest that Obama would have a freer a hand to expand the federal government when it comes to regulation than on uh, civil uh, liberties excesses. And since the courts tend to follow public opinion rather than challenge it, then that might play out uh, in the judiciary as well. I think we have time for one more uh, brief question. Uh, somebody in the back this time. Yes. Ashley Marsh from the Cato Institute. Purely speculative question for anybody on the panel. Uh, back to the issue of Congress assuming its authority. Do you think term limits would help? I don't. Well, I don't like term limits. Let's see. Some people think if you had term limits, you'd get corruption out. I think the experience is when you have term limits, and in California, everyone else, uh, uh, when you're in there for one or two years, you're already looking for your next job from a lobbyist, so you're not even uh, carrying out your institutional duties. What concerns me more, I mean, I have members of Congress who will tell me that their colleagues spend 50, 60 percent of the week raising money. And uh, uh, even if you exclude uh, corruption, uh, you're still having people spending the bulk of the week not doing their job, and it's very hard. Oversight is a grind. They have to do it year after year. You need time. So uh, I'm just concerned the members do not have uh, the time to do their job. Here, here. And in fact, someone has suggested that uh, candidate time protection is the best reason for the courts to uphold campaign finance reform. So that, that reinforces that point. Well, uh, I think we'll close and uh, you join us upstairs for, uh, for some sandwiches. Thank you all for uh, great questions and a great panel. Thank you.